It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This show is brought to you in association with Paddy Power. Get a free £20 bet when you sign up and bet a tenner at PaddyPower.com slash The Spurs Show. Gentlemen, welcome to this week's edition of the Spurs Show. You join us live at the Guanabara Club, Covent Garden, with this lot. Mike Lee, once again, sitting with Phil Cornwall, my co host tonight, Mr. Theo Delaney. Hello. Do you Spurs? And uh, our special guests tonight, Mr. Gary Mabbott and Glenn Hoddle. Evening. Thank you. Normally on our weekly shows, you know, we, we talk about the current team, but we just can't do it anymore. <laughs> it's the same show every week, and we all want to kill ourselves. So this is a very special end-of-season show. Uh, speaking to two absolute legends of, of Tottenham Hotspur, and we're absolutely privileged, privileged to have you both here this evening. Thank you so much. Um, so, what we're going to do tonight? We're going to ask them sort of questions as we go along, and, and if it's time, um, we'll ask the audience if there's any questions as well. So, um, what we'll do before we before we talk about your your, your both your careers at Spurs, we we want, we want to talk very very quickly about. Uh, the season that, that Tottenham just had uh, yeah, very quickly yeah. which um, which is it's like a pantomime isn't it? like panto it's behind you, behind you. Uh, which has been a disappointment on many levels the biggest questions that most of our listeners uh, around the world have, have, have come out with this season is was it right for Tottenham to bring seven new players in at once and if so who made the ultimate decision should AVB be given more time? And why did the board decide to appoint 
a rookie manager to take over for the rest of the season. Gary, <laughs> we'll start with Gary. Gary, I mean, there's three sort of points there. Would you like to sort of address some of those points? Do you think mistake, mistakes made or not? Over to you, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I have to say that uh, we knew that Gareth Bale was going last year. I don't think we quite realised how important a player he was to the side. I think that uh, he was a player that, well, we haven't had this season. We don't have a player that when the things are going against you, they can grab the game by the scruff of the neck and turn the game your way. Now, players like, obviously, Glenn alongside me, Paul Gascoigne, players like that. Players that can just, and Gareth Bell had it last season. For me, losing him to Real Madrid, it was expected. He went out, we spent a lot of money bringing in seven new players. One of the questions was, is it wise to bring in seven new players at the start of the season? It wasn't even the... It's not like you get those players at the beginning of pre-season. All those players arrive two weeks into the season. Trying to integrate seven players into a squad at that stage is virtually impossible. Um, I would say that during my time at Tottenham, I was there for 16 years, and during that time, the most we ever brought in was perhaps you know, two, three, maybe four maximum players joining the squad. The players that came in, all of us Spurs fans, when they were coming in, we looked at the names coming in. Lamela, yeah, who was fifth, fifth, the season, fifth the season before... In Serie A, you know, fifth top goal scorer, 15 goals in 33 games for Roma. Paulino, we've seen him in the Confederations Cup, playing in the final against Spain. He scored against Japan, scored against Uruguay. Soldado, you know, again, 100 goals in 200 games in La Liga. All these players that when they came in, we thought this could be the thing. You know, these players could be the future of Tottenham. Now, I would say that being honest this season... I think Christian Eriksen, for me, is the only one, and that's been the latter part. That has, that has reached his potential. So, can you say, OK, we've got those players there. With a year's experience, going into next season, yeah, that could be valuable to them. But for this season, it's been a very unsettling season, and I'm sure... I read a lot of the comments uh, on the websites and things. You know, Spurs fans, I think this year, were hoping... We're hoping to at least put in a sustained challenge for that top four place. Mm. No, I, 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 uh, I, I take Gary's point. It's a good point you made. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think the point that Gary makes about Gareth Bale is, uh, you, you know, if you, look at, um, if you look at Barcelona, Messi has not been anywhere near uh, the form that he's been in. He was injured and, uh, you know, a great team like Barcelona, if you can miss one player, one player can be the difference. And I think Spurs actually found that out this season without any shadow of a doubt, Gary, you're right. Um, even people like Van Persie for Arsenal, too, there's no chance of them getting in the top four without Van Persie, the way he made the difference. And uh, he did it again at United. So the one player is very special. The key for me was bringing the seven players in, OK, a bit ambitious. For me, that, that, that nobody thought deep and hard enough that none of those players really had any Premier League experience. And that's the key for me. You have to understand this uh, league. It's not the same anywhere in the world. You know, the culture in England, the way it's played, the tempo, the way you guys as fans make every team play at a much quicker tempo. In actual fact, that I think is one of the things that Spurs have had a problem with this year. It's the tempo that, we, that we've played at, certainly at the beginning of the season. 
the players that, that, that brought in, for me, don't look forward quick enough. And that's a technical thing and a tactical thing that needed to be sorted out. And I think we've, I think we've hurt. I think we've, I think we've, it's been hurt. It's been hurt, you know. So, yes, Baldini probably, uh, Mr. Baldini probably had the, uh, the say in who the players were coming in. And I think that's uh, always a, a remedy for disaster in many ways. A, a, football, a football director and a manager have to work hand in glove. If they don't work hand in glove, it never will work. And that, I, I found that out myself in, in different clubs, be it Tottenham as well. There wasn't, there wasn't that continuity and that, that feel between the two, two people. And if you get that, you're going you're to be, be fighting against the tide and it's an uphill battle. That is a real problem at the club and they need to address that. They really do. Whoever comes in has to have that scenario cleared up. Because if not, the same things are going to happen again. And that's what concerns me. You know, that we do need a new stadium. Uh, I think there will be big changes. I think, you'd, I think for, to, 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 go and, to go and challenge the, the teams that you're going to have to challenge, 36,000 is, is, is fantastic. But we all know we could, we could fill a 60,000 stadium. And to get the revenue in, that then, that then builds up. That's your opportunity to get into the Champions League. But not only getting in one year, you have to get in every year, two or three years. And that's going to take a bit of building. It really is, a bit of time. The uh, third part of that question um, was, uh, I know you're not on the board, but why do you think the board decided to appoint, once they sacked AVB, a rookie manager to take over the rest of the season? Do you think... Uh, you're welcome to your opinions. <laughs> I, I actually, I actually, Daniel, Daniel actually phoned me up. Um, he did phone. I'll try and answer it if I can. Um, Daniel phoned me up. Um, there was a problem there, and he just sort of, as a sounding board, he wanted a little bit of advice, my ideas, how he, how I saw the team playing. I had a chat with Baldini as well, and um, you know, it was it was pretty much trying to help help the club out in the end of that chat numerous chats um, it was said possibly would I be interested in taking it to the end of the season now I said yes to that because it's the only club in, you know it's in my DNA Tottenham as it is in Gary's and it's the only club I'd have ever done that for um, and that's all that happened they decided not to make that decision and I respect that and um, but that is what happened and you know I I I took that on the chin and thought, well, I just want whoever, they, whoever takes over, I want the club to do well. That's really what, I, what I've always had in my heart. Really, I want Tottenham to be successful as they possibly can. But that did happen. I was close to it. In the end, I, I, I gave my opinions on certain people that, uh, that they were looking at. And, and that's where it went at the end. What do you think they should do now? What do you, who do you think they should um, appoint going forward? Well, I think, I think there needs to be consistency and continuity. I don't think now, whoever they bring in, if they keep, if they keep Tim, Tim Sherwood or if they bring new people in, they've got to give them that opportunity. They cannot just after one season. And that, as I say, the buying of the players has to be hand in glove with, with the, with the uh, director of football. If they don't do that, we're going to fail again and we'll be finding ourselves in the same position at the end of next season and the season after. You have to, you know, you have to look wide, you have to look far, and you have to, I think, go for... Ex- at the moment, Tottenham needs experience. Right. And if you go that, put your hat on him and let him, dis- let him have three years at least. And that's, in this day, you get three games. So of all, of all the people games. that are being... There's a lot of names being banded around, but, but oddly enough, since Louis van Gaal has now, now thought mm. that he's going to Manchester United, the other sort of leading contenders don't seem to be that, in, as far as the bookies are concerned, 
aren't that experienced, are they? You've got Pochettino and you've got Frank de Boer. Not, young guys, not that much experience. Who, who would you... So, um, definitely not a young guys. <laughs> <laughs> but would you think either of those would be good candidates? I, I've or? got to say, Pochettino has, has, has impressed me at Southampton. Whether he can go to a, a much bigger club and, and, and produce that, I've never met the guy, I don't know him, but I, I love the way that he's got Southampton playing, and you imagine with the squad at Tottenham, that would be quite exciting. They, they yeah. play a much higher tempo with and without the ball, so that, would, that wouldn't be a bad uh, acquisition for me, but you'd have to give him time. Yeah. Gary, who, who would you see there if, if you were given the choice? I think it's difficult because at the moment uh, Tim Sherwood is the man in, in charge. Uh, as far as as far as the end of the season, that's the case. Um, whatever happens, whoever, if the chairman, you know, they'll have discussions and meetings. The board will have big discussions on this. They have to decide: are they going to stay with Tim Sherwood or are they going to move on? And no matter whether it's Tim or somebody else, what has to happen is that whoever comes in must be able to work hand-in-hand hand with the chairman, putting together a vision and a strategy for the future of Tottenham. It's, not, you know, it's got to be a longer-term plan. At the moment, it's all about winning today and forget about tomorrow. And that's why managers, you see so many managers being, being sacked. I think since the turn of the century, we've had like seven or eight different managers at Tottenham. But that's all clubs. All clubs at the top, whether it be Real Madrid, Bayern Munich... All the clubs, apart from Manchester United and Arsenal, everyone, no one else has had consistency yeah. and continuity. That's what we need to get. And a vision that everyone's working, singing from the same song sheet, moving forward together. That's what we need at Tottenham. A plan for the future that's going to put us into that top four every season. I mean, the, unfortunately, I'm sure that everyone out here has as well. I've got a lot of friends of mine who are Arsenal fans, and they moan about Arsene Wenger. They moan about what he's done. You know, he should have gone long ago. This is now 16 years on the trot. They've got Champions League football. They've now got the FA Cup. For, I mean, we need a manager that can come in and do that for the club. We had Champions League football once, and it was utopia for us. But we need to have European football every season at the highest level and at least be putting in a sustained challenge, not only for the top four, but look, looking at even higher than that. So on that, on that basis, would you, you know, for you both, Daniel Levy, on that basis, would you have sacked AVB when he was sacked? To me, AVB, I mean, he proved at Porto of what, his credentials. He worked before with you know, some very good managers in Marino and Bobby Robson. He came into Chelsea. I think coming into the UK, his biggest problem that he had was dealing with the media. Um, I think his, some of the decisions he made, I, th I think, were wrong. When he came into Tottenham, for example, Brad Friedel had played 310 consecutive Premiership games. He just played away at Old Trafford, got man of the match, and we won the first time there in 20-odd years. The following game, he dropped him and brought in Hugo Lloris. Players have to earn their place. When he made that decision, I was very surprised. I'm sure that some of the players also would have looked at that, you know, not being very convinced about what he'd done. Just after that, Jermaine Defoe, who's a, a confidence player, scored a hat-trick on the Thursday against Maripor in the Europa League. On the Sunday, away at Man City, he was on the bench. So, yeah, the decision he made, he criticised the fans after the 1-0 victory against Hull. He criticised the fans. No manager should come out and do that. Uh, so, for me, he made a few... But is AVB a good manager? Should we give him a longer time? Well, he's gone to Russia. He's gone to Russia with Zenit St. Petersburg. They're top of the table... They won his first six games in charge, and he's like going to win the title there. So, is he a good manager? I think, underneath it all, I think people that came through, 
the Marinos and the Robsons saw something in him that impressed them. I just don't feel that he got on being a Premiership manager. Glenn, Spurs fans are divided over AVB. Many people come out with the points that Gary's come out with. And then a lot of us will say the football under AVB was turgid. It was quite negative. It wasn't exciting. And as you know, Spurs is all about playing attractive football to yeah, the fans. Yeah, I, I touched on it earlier, Mike. You know, I felt that uh, early parts of the season, they were too, we were too slow in our build-up. You know, the players, they didn't have that much uh, sort of, uh, on a system, they didn't have that much guidance. I, didn't, I think they were just being swapped and changed. He had a big squad, a strong squad. I think that's been the, the problem all season, really, in, in many, many ways. I'm not sure there's enough players at Tottenham at this moment in time who they could say to themselves, I'm in the starting eleven here every week. And I think that certainly in the beginning of the season there was, there was too many changes. I don't get rotation. I really don't. In this day and age, um, you've got to put out your best team that you think or that suits the system you're going to play. And then you build on that and then people come in when people hit bad form or they get injured. And that's where you, you use your squad. Um, but to just give you a little bit of insight that maybe people don't understand fully, I do believe, knowing what I know... But I don't know whether... AVB wasn't a happy bunny from the first kick of the season. Mm. He wasn't happy at the club. And I think if, you, if you've got a manager that isn't happy with what's happened, with players coming in, with what he wanted to do, his hands were a little bit tired, um, I don't think he gave it absolutely everything. And I, and I, I probably ex- would, have, would have understood that because of the, the constraints that were put on him, the people that were brought in. There was players that he wanted in that weren't brought in. So I think he wasn't a happy bunny at the beginning. So it was difficult for Daniel Levy and the club when you've got a, a manager building like that. And I think that's something that, uh, to be fair to Daniel, was tough for him. And I think he did try and give him as much time as he possibly could. But I think it's very dangerous if the manager in the end isn't happy. Um, his decision to, to take him in the first place, I think, yeah, I, it was a bit of a, an eyebrow went up because of what he did Gamble, at Chelsea. It? Yeah, because, it, it, you know, it, it failed at Chelsea for different reasons. And it, it seems like what some of the examples Gary's just said, he, 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 hasn't, he didn't learn from those mistakes. He did similar things with players when he first came in at Tottenham. So, you know, it probably in the end, um, I think he could come back in two or three years' time to the Premier League. As Gary said, he's gone to Zenit. Maybe it was a little bit early for him in this league particularly. I think at the start of the season, in my opinion, I think that uh, he didn't have a clue who his best players were, didn't have a clue what his best team was, and didn't have a clue you know, what formation he was going to be playing. I think at, at times he was trying to, you know, he was trying to fit square pegs in round holes. There were players being played out of position. He didn't get on particularly well with Christian Eriksen. To me, Eriksen should have been played behind, behind the front man at least, or he was played in all different positions. <laughs> Players, when they're coming in, they're trying to make their mark in the Premier League. Glenn touched on it earlier. The Premier League is a very tough league to make your mark in. And players at that level coming in with high price tags, their ex- expectations of us supporters are huge on them. And being played out of position, not being given in a team that was playing well, I believe that uh, that was AVB's problem and playing with one man up front at home in a number of games, to me, uh, I found quite amazing. Um, Glenn, what, what, you, what you've said there about AVB being unhappy, seems to be, he seems to be the latest in a long line of managers who ended up, up unhappy working for, for Daniel Levy. And, and of course, you were the first one who, who he hired. 
and it didn't end well with you and Daniel. And it, it, some of the fans start to wonder, is it possible, is, is it at all possible for a manager to successfully work for this chairman or is, it, or is there something about the relationship? Well, I think, I, think, I, think, I, think, I can only be honest, I think over the years, I think Daniel's got more involved in the football side and I, don't, I think he's a very, very good, very good businessman. He's done some really good shrewd moves for Tottenham on the business side. And I think, you know, you know why, why would I? Why would me and Gary really go in there and try and run Tottenham Hotspur Football Club on the business side? No, because we wouldn't know quite the ins and outs. We wouldn't be, do a, probably a good job. And I think football people have got to do football decisions and make football decisions. And unfortunately, I think if I was, you know, if Daniel was sitting across the room or the table now, that's one thing I'd be open and honest and just say to him, you need to trust the people that you're putting employed to do your job. Mm. And then just get behind them and, con- and, and consistently give them that opportunity. And I think that maybe is what he did at the very beginning and it's, it didn't quite work out. The money then came for the club. That, that sort of evolved very quickly in the last, what, 10 years. Um, and then that hasn't happened. But for me, Harry should never have been sacked. Simple right. as that. For the job that he was doing and the vision, if, if, you know, again, if, if, if I'd have been asked... You know, do you think, whatever the circumstances were, there might have been other circumstances behind the scenes, I don't know, but at the end of the day, on the football front, if you want to go forward and be successful, and you've got a manager that got you into the Champions League, and, you, and, and, and very close, and you could see that things were going to grow. Harry should never have been sacked on the football front, no way. Yeah. When, you, when you look at all the other managers that have been, uh, been sacked before, you know. So, at the end of the day, it's, it's something that, I, that, that I've always believed, whether you've got directors of football... Managers, coaches, whatever players, that is the, that's the section of the club that needs to be left alone. You've got to trust them. That's what Manchester United do. That's what Arsenal have done. So what we're concluding is we need someone to be given a chance, to be given you know, two or three years and really let the football people do the football work. Well, yeah, so we need Lee Daniel to change a bit, don't we? Yeah, but the key to that is you have to... The, the big question is you have to get the right person. Yeah. If you give somebody three years, that doesn't mean it's going to be instant success over three sure. years, you know? You've got to get the right person. And, and at the moment, it's a big ask. It's a big, big decision that the club are coming to at the moment. Were you, but, Glenn, were you, in hindsight, were you given the freedom to manage the way you want to manage at Spurs? And, and being a massive fan, it must be very difficult for you when it didn't work out. Why, why yeah. do you think that was? Uh, well, the first question there, I, 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 there was no influence there. There was no influence from, from the board level. That was when I'm saying... Daniel was in a position then where he left, the, he left it to football people. Um, I slightly had a problem with the politics at the club. Tottenham should have been the happiest place that I've ever managed. And I've got to say it was the most unhappiest because of the politics that got in the way. Um, what, so, so what were those politics well, I, for those who don't remember listen, back in 2002, uh, three? Yeah, I respect David. David Pleat was, you know, the, the, the football director. I was told that he was going to stay. He wouldn't have been my choice, I've got to be honest. But I had to, you know, I turned Tottenham down once when I went to Chelsea. That was, you know, on, on, I'd given my word to Chelsea and Alan Sugar come to me at the last minute and said he wanted me to manage. And I turned it down because I, I'd given my word. Uh, it was a tough decision, I've got to say. Um, but when it came knocking again, I probably made a big mistake. I let my heart rule my head. I, I should have actually said, no, I want this, I want that, I want that person, I want this, this is my team. You either take that team with me, and I, and I, you know, or you don't at all. And actually, I wanted the job that much that my heart overruled me head, and it and it it was a problem in the end. You know, there was it wasn't that they were influenced. It was it was there was players there that I wanted that got blocked, 
that got blocked. Was that a financial reason or from a plain point of view? Um, it was said that it was financial. And at the time, I've got to say, the club wasn't in the financial position that it is now. You know, I think it's great that, that, that they did put money into the club. How they, how they got it, I was surprised. You know, I was scratching my head, thinking, well, I wish I'd have had that sort of money. We didn't have that money. It was simple as that. I had to get, I think it was uh, Teddy Sheringham and Gus Poyet on free transfers at that stage. And that's what the budget was, and we had to, we had to do that. Um, I was very disappointed at the time when I went, I went for a 22-year-old um, Samueto. He was 22 at the time, and you've seen what he did. And I wanted Morientes. Morientes and, and, and Eto, those two at the time, for about 10 million. And that got blocked. And that was disappointing for me. But you have to, as a manager, you have to get on with it. You just have to get on with it. But this is, you know, this is, this is a running theme with, 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 with the board and, and, and yeah. the people who run our football club. And, and, you know, we all know that it all boils down to that. And no, I, I, listen, I, I, I'm, what I'm saying is I think we've got Daniel Levy as a guy for the football, so, uh, sorry, for the club. And for Tottenham taking it forward, getting the stadium, that is, that is something I would trust in him and I would say he is the right person. But let's, let's let the people, the football people, run the football side of the club. Why would you go to BP or to any other big industry and do it differently? You know, you just wouldn't. You, you get the experts in to do the job that they're asked to do and, and then give them the confidence that you, you trust in them and you back them. Gary, I mean, you know, you're ex-club captain at Tottenham. What do the players say to each other when Spurs, you know, when you were there, you know, for example, Bale was sold beginning the season, Van Navarre, Modric, various, uh, Berbatov, massive players for Tottenham. Spurs were now perceived as a selling club. What's it like for players at the time when you see your best players being sold? And what's sort of said within the dressing room? I think it's, uh, it's part of the business. I've been at Tottenham sales there for 16 years. Yeah, and during that time, uh, you know, Glenn was sold. We had Gaza was sold. Um, Jürgen Klinsmann left us. I mean, Teddy Sheringham was sold to Manchester United. So you always expect uh, players to move on at some stage if they get the opportunity and that player wants to move. I think what's important with that is that generally players are very stoical in that they, they accept it, they get on with it. New players come in, you, you try and rebuild a new team. You, a transitional period you have. In my time at Tottenham, I must have had about, I would say, seven or eight transitional periods whereby new, completely new teams come in, new players come in, and you have to start building a team again. Um, and you start building with solid foundations and you build forward. I think at times, at the moment, it doesn't seem to me that we've, over the, you know, probably the last decade or so, you know, the foundations, the strength that we have there... Um, I don't think we, we built from the right areas at, at the right times. I think Glenn was just mentioning about the playing so I mentioned when he was at the club. I also feel, I mentioned at the start, about uh, everyone singing from the same song sheet. I believe that a director of football and the manager and the whole staff have to be working together. Mm. And I've seen in my time at Tottenham and uh, obviously with people since, whereby the actual football side of the team has not been singing from the same song sheet. And so Can it work, people, though? Can a director of football work at Tottenham? You worked under David Pleat, but, but surely a director of football is brought in and then he appoints a manager. Well, I tell you, I t- the only way it works for me, and, and there's a reason why they don't, it wouldn't happen at most clubs, is because they like a, a football director to be the, the eyes and ears and a sounding board and reporting back to the board. Um, for me, if the manager... If, they were, if, if a club said, any club, let's say Tottenham, 
if they said, right, we, we, we've got this guy in, he's got a three-year contract, and we're going to, you know, or five-year contract, and we're going to get behind him, give him the time, then you sit him down and say, right, who can you work with? Who can you work with that you trust, that is experienced enough, that can go and buy the players that you want? Um, that's, that, it can work. That can work. That then takes a lot of the burden away from the manager. The problem is with the manager, he's always thinking, does the director of football want his job further down the line when the results go bad? But if that manager knows him and has chosen him, he knows that that, that, isn't, that isn't the case with that. So they can work as a team. But unfortunately, it's from the board level. They, need, they want eyes and ears, a sounding board, back to the board of what's happening at the training ground, what's going on there, and that doesn't work. And that is the real issue on the football front for me. And um, unless you get somebody like that, so it's the other way around. The manager, choose the manager, say, right, we're going to give him a chance, we're going to get three years. You choose, you choose a director of football who you can work with because we're splitting the club down the middle. That's the football side, and we'll look after the business side. But Tottenham aren't uh, isolated in this by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Most big clubs have exactly the same problems behind the scenes. Uh, Jurgen Klinsmann's time at Bayern Munich, that was so... Um, messed up and ruined by the politics that were taking place but between the board that he was dealing with which was a football board who was supposed to be working with Jürgen at the end of it ended up working with the owners and you know so all of it looks so good being put together every club has these same issues there's only actually one manager um, that I think that I've come across that everybody has said good things about everyone that's worked with this manager uh, spoken very highly about, and that's Gus Hiddink. Um, everyone I know, I mean, during my time here at Tottenham, uh, I used to share a room with Jurgen Klinsmann. And even then, I remember us talking about uh, you know, Gus Hiddink and the way that he managed his players. He managed his players in a way that if he had a squad of 26 players, he would try and improve every one of those players, either on or off the field, in the belief that that tiny bit he could improve each player that that would be the difference between winning and losing at the highest level. And I think Jürgen himself has taken on a lot of Gus Hiddink's um, you know, mm. ideals into his managership. Uh, obviously, Jürgen's manager of the USA now. He took Germany to the semi-finals of the World Cup. And again, some of his things that he did when he's with Germany, on the way to games, uh, he always played all the highlights of the, the previous games. If they had a bad game, he wouldn't show that. All the highlights of the games... He got the whole crowd in Germany behind the team during that World Cup, which changed the whole mentality of the German people. But that was all because of football that he was changing. Players, if you're not playing one of the first 11, you feel left out. You want to be in that first 11. If you're not in that first 11, you have some players that will sulk, some players that could cause problems behind the scenes. Jürgen, before every match, he would make... His substitutes do the team talks before the game. Going around, doing the last speech before going on the pitch, he'd get one of the subs to do it before the game, trying to get that unity within the squad. But all these ideas of modern-day football that I, I believe that uh, you know, a manager that's going to be there for the long time, for the long period, is somebody that you've got to trust, bring in, and know full well is going to work closely with the board They'll be able to do a great job for the club. Gary, you've just made an amazingly good case for Jurgen Klinsmann <laughs> to be the new manager. Now, I know, I know he's a friend of yours. Has he sent you here with a mission? And is he going to be available after the World Cup? <laughs> Jurgen has just signed a brand new four-year oh, contract no, no. with the USA. Uh, I spoke to him th- this week, and uh, they're, off for, they're off to 
um, go do their World Cup training next week. They're starting, so they've got a big program going. But he's got a huge team with him, and uh, he loves living in the States. His, his wife's American, so a four-year contract with the USA. I think he's enjoying himself. I think that's a no, then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One quick question before we look at your playing career that uh, people want to know. Uh, Sol Campbell. Uh, uh, I, who? Sol Campbell has claimed in his recent book, uh, Glenn, that you did little to try and make him stay at Spurs. <laughs> what's, uh, as, a, as a fan and ex-player, what was your take on that? And, and what, what did you feel about what, what, he, he, what he did to the club? He must have got it over the head when he was making that. <laughs> thing. Uh, no, I think, I think the problem with Sol was his agent. It wasn't Sol. I mean, um, at the end of the day... Um, I had him round my house for a meal with the family. Um, I, I tried to convince him that that's, you know, Tottenham was the place that he should have stayed. He gave the club his word he was staying. That was the problem. And in the end, but I could, I could, I could sense there was a problem. Um, that's why I did. I went out on a limb and actually met him at my house and took him in and tried to connect. But it was for me. It was the. I was always suspicious of, of the agent at the time, getting in his ear and. Uh, the rest is history, but um, no, I, I did feel let down. I did feel let down, but you know that, that's life. You've got to respect that uh, players are going to make their decisions, and it was a tough one for him, and it wasn't a, it wasn't one that I particularly liked, but uh, he made it, and there's nothing you can do about that. You know, I had to make that decision. I'd I'd done 13 years at Tottenham, um, and in the end, I wanted to express going and playing abroad, a little bit different. I didn't go to Arsenal. But but, um, but, it, but yeah, exactly. The, the key the key to it though is you, you know there's there's no there's no rights and wrongs in football. There's no law no. in there to say that you can't go to it. You know. But would you would you is it fair to say it's the greatest act of treachery in the history of football when Sol Campbell <laughs> went to Arsenal? In your opinion, yes. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, turning both to your careers, he as obviously players. didn't like the food I gave him. That was it. <laughs> Um, another question we had in um, to both of you because you sort of there obviously both in the early eighties. Why didn't Spurs win the league under Keith Birkinshaw during the period we were winning trophies? In your in your opinion, you got that one. Well, it's a good question, and we'll just go that take it one step back. Isn't that an example? I know it was a different era, but is it different nowadays? You know, you're trying to build a team, Keith. You know, Keith. Keith, we, t- we went down into the second division and the club, the Keith, what I'm saying, the club stayed with him. Mm. They saw something in him. There was continuity. They, they said, right, OK, if we come straight back up, probably if we hadn't got straight back up, he might have been sacked. We got up and then the rest. But then it took time. Because Ozzy and Ricky arrived in 78, everyone was going wild. If you remember, the ticker tape and everything yeah. at home, White Hart Lane, yeah. 4-1 we lost that day against Villa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We thought the ticker tape was enough to win the game. <laughs> but it, it took a couple of years for them to settle and for us to get to know... And, and the missing jigsaw was the two strikers. No disrespect to the guys that were playing at the time, but until um, Keith went out and got Steve Archibald and Garth Crooks, and then we had Mark Falco as well, who was a terrific goal scorer, and he could come in and, make, and, and affect the game on so many big games as well, but maybe not have the consistency physically to keep that going. So we, had, we, had, we suddenly had the last part of the jigsaw at the top, which is the hardest thing to do, is to put the ball in the back of the net. We had all this here. We had creativity, the lovely style that 
we, 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 Tottenham wanted to play after generation after generation and always will do. But, um, but there was something missing and Keith was given that chance to build and then we started to, to progress. What did we do? We ended up... Uh, Urban Scholar came in, tried to change it. It was probably the first sort of chairman that was forward-thinking, if you like, very foreign style, tried to change things, fell out with Keith, and after winning the UEFA Cup, Keith left the club. So what could have happened over the next period of time? Who knows? But um, I think that, you know, that's, that's interesting to say that. We, the, the, the time when we lost it to Everton was the key. That was the, we, it was, and that was down to us. That was down to the players. At the end of the day, we had two games in hand, I think, at home. We had Everton at home. And we didn't perform in those, in those latter periods. All through the season, we looked on course for it. We were playing some super football. And um, at, the, at the moment of truth, we did have a lot of games that season. Um, but it was down to us. It was us that should have driven that over the line. But Keith built a side good enough to win the league. Definitely. Sometimes it doesn't happen. Do you think we were a bit too gung-ho away from home in that period? Maybe we should have... Defensively. Well, that was Keith. Keith was. A, it was really strange, Keith. He, you know, bless him. He played where he played, and he was. A, he didn't have much skill, Gary, did he? <laughs> in the eight asides and that, he, we used to love having him join in because we took the piss out of him. Really. <laughs> Sorry, Keith, but um, but what he did, what he couldn't achieve as a player, he wanted his team to express himself and play that way. So Keith was never ever going to change his philosophy of the way he played. And the players that he played all the time, you know, if, if Ricky wasn't fit or I wasn't fit, young Mickey Hazard came in, he was a magnificent player. You know, we had Ozzy, we had, uh, you know, we had a balance and we had a flair side there. And it was never, it, Tony Galvin, terrific, fantastic winger, fantastic winger, you know. And, and we, he built, you know, he built a side on the back of the, the traditions of Tottenham. Those um, early 80s teams, obviously, we all remember with such great affection. And then there was another great team, which was the, the team that David Pleat built, of course, and the, the 87 team, which was almost revolutionary, wasn't it, with the five-man midfield and the one striker. Do you think that was an even better team, possibly, than Birkinshaw's teams? Well, obviously, I think that... Uh, I mean, I arrived in 1982, and I have to say that I came from Bristol Rovers. Uh, no one had ever heard of me. I came into a arrived at the training ground and all the players at the training ground uh, I met Keith Birkinshaw there you know, all the players there were international footballers I'd only ever seen these players before either on match of the day or on top of the pops <laughs> that was a bit late again. <laughs> you're obviously talking about Chaz and Dave yeah <laughs> but I have to say that the, the camaraderie and the team spirit that that Keith Bergenshaw and, have to say, Peter yeah. Shreves brought to this period of time at the club was fantastic. Uh, so I, I came in, and nobody from Bristol. I was fortunate I got straight into the first team. I was made to feel welcome from the day I got there. That's because everybody around you wanted, wanted it all to be a success, mm. wanted everyone to be part of the success, wanted you to be part of that, and hopefully working together towards the same end. Mm. And I think that's what this squad of players had in... 1987, obviously things decided to change, um, but then David Pleat was in charge, and literally we just fell into this 4-5-1 yeah, formation. It, I think it was David Pleat's ideal. It wasn't a genius. He didn't no, invent the 5 I, I don't think it's a stroke of genius. I just think that the players that we had, you've got to remember that the squad of players that we brought together then, uh, we had Ray Clements in goal, obviously we had Danny Thomas right back to start with, Chris mm. Hewton, 
but then, obviously, going through the middle, I had myself and Richard Goff, Brilliant. who was a, you know, probably one of my, the best partnership I had during my time at Tottenham. Mm-hmm. Our five-man midfield, we had Glenn, Ozzy Ardiles, Chrissy Waddle, Steve Hodge, Paul Allen, Clive Allen up front on his own. Clove got the record 49 goals, but Clove would be the first to say he could have got 70 goals that season. I mean, we created, we played such great football, we created so many opportunities, and is still to me the fact that it was the almost but not quite team. We got yeah. to the semi final of the League Cup, final of the FA Cup, we came third in the league, we were so close mm. um, to achieving something big yeah. uh, at that time. And of course, uh, I hear a few mentioning the cup final now. I can, just, I can feel it coming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, we went into that cup final. My first cup final for Tottenham. Uh, and fantastic lead up to it, the whole build up. And say, we were playing some great football. Uh, we went out at Wembley. In the first couple of minutes, I think Clive Allen scored yeah. for us. Too early. Too early. <laughs> Too early. <laughs> then Dave Bennett e- equalised, I think, for, uh, for Coventry. And then we had a. Then, this is the one. This is one you all forget, by the way. Then we went two one up just before half time, when I scored for Tottenham, by the way. But it was a the scrappiest goal in history. <laughs> but then Keith Houchin equalised, and then of course, uh, obviously, we had Mitchell Thomas playing left back, and Mitchell had gone. Mitchell had gone AWOL at the time. Disappeared. So they, they had a counter attack. They broke down our down our left hand side. And uh, I think it was Lloyd McGrath was on the ball. Yeah. So I've gone across to, to block the cross. He's hit the ball into the box. I mean, 99 times out of 100, the ball would hit your leg and go out for a corner. Very or, fall into your, or you clear it. Okay. On this one small occasion, <laughs> it hit the top of my knee. And as I turned, I could see it looping over Ray Clements. I mean, it was a... Uh, Blame Mitchell Thomas. Well... I think so. I think we're all but, comfortable with blaming Mitchell Thomas. Aren't I mean, uh, the first <laughs> cup final, the only one we've ever lost. My yeah. first cup final, and of course, uh, I scored the winning goal for Coventry. But no. yeah, I'm an absolute legend in Coventry, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so had, you, no, is that why you're wearing sky blue? <laughs> <laughs> they had an internet vote last year for the most influential player in Coventry's history, and I won it. <laughs> so. It, it wasn't a great day. I'm not sure if it was uh, made even better when we went to the after-match party, like a thousand people in a marquee at White Hart Lane, and the, we had a, a certain duo singing live oh, no. <laughs> on the stage that night. So uh, and pissed. <laughs> <laughs> so no, it was a it was a disappointing day, uh, frustrating because mm. the way we played that season, we deserved something and we got nothing. Yeah. Actually, I, I got to add, it was, it, it, was, um, it, was, it was the lowest time I've ever had. It was my last game, Gary's first cup final for Tottenham, he's saying. It was my actual last game for the club. Yeah. So it was a really, really hard one to take. To, to go. I, I, the week before, I was very lucky enough, you know, from eight years of age, to support Tottenham, play all them years, go through the school. Boy, and then to send, send the fans off, really, I scored a goal at White Hart Lane in my last game against yeah. Oxford. And it was like what a, a goal! What a goal! Yeah, but I couldn't, I couldn't have, I couldn't have written that. I couldn't have written that any better. It was like it was like one of your films, yeah. And um, and you know, and then the following week, where you know the cup final, and I'm thinking, great, what a way to fit. And it was terrible. It was absolutely the worst, the worst feeling I've ever had. And that's why we got up and sung Diamond Lights when we did <laughs> to try, try and lift the spirits. 
Yeah, cheers, yeah, you know, you feel a lot better now. Yeah, cheers, thanks. <laughs> but, yeah, I, was in a, I was in a function. This is sad. This is a function with Spurs people, and uh, there were quite a few had a lot to drink. They started singing all the Spurs songs. They came across the 87 song, all right? <laughs> it's Hot Shot Tottenham, we all yeah. super spread, blah, blah, blah. Right, anyway, like they, they, they carried on, they went, seven times you won the cup, then Gary Mabbott it up. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, cheers, thanks very much. Let <laughs> uh, me want to ask you that, you know, Undoubtedly, you were the most outstanding England player in, in the 1980s, but, but you did get less England caps than, than your skill deserved. What was it like playing for a team that wasn't really set up to utilise what, what you brought to um, the game? Was that a real frustration? Yeah, for it you? was. Yeah, it was frustrating. Very. It was a different era. I mean, you know, the, the, everyone played a sim system in those days. Everyone was playing 4-4-2. Probably Keith and when Ozzy and, and Ricky came, we had to we had to change the system a little bit. Even then, even then, we had to change it for Ricky, because Ricky played off in behind the front two, and really that's really where I should have played. But I had to play on the right side of the diamond, that was allowed to go and float. And, and at, um, at England, it was four four two, very rigid the way we played. It used to drive me mad. It really did. I got shoved out on the right-hand side. I probably played, out of 53 caps, probably about three or four games where I played in the, in the right position. But at those days, as I say, the managers were very rigid in their 4-4-2. And I think we went backwards. We went backwards, you know, it took us backwards. And in those days as well, with the pitches as they were, it was tough to be a creative player. It really was. You played in the offside rule. You know, it was 60 by 40 in, in, in mostly mud. And to really try and express yourself and, and be a player, um, I think players nowadays, uh, you know, with the pitches as they are, the game's more stretched because of the back pass rule, the, the, the rules are different, the rules are completely different. It would have been much uh, better and easier for me to play in this era, or any creative player, Peter Beardsley, Chris Waddle, yeah. all them players. But what we produced under them circumstances, I was surprised that a lot of foreign teams didn't actually come and buy English players more than they did because um, that game was more stretched and they had more time on the ball and more space. So it was, uh, it was interesting that they didn't come and get, get enough English players, good English players, technical players. Because if you could do it under them circumstances, you certainly could do it you know, in the style... Is of that the one of the reasons why you decided to, to, to leave uh, and yeah. go to Monaco? Is that... Yeah, I mean, I always wanted to try and go abroad and play abroad just to to see whether it was different and get the experience. And I would, I would advise that for any young player, you know, eventually, because it, it just broadens you as a player and it tests you as a player. You know, the, the, the first sort of three months was hard at Monaco, but then, you know, you get man-for-man man marked in France then, in those days, because the rules were different. I got man-for-man man marked every game. It was a challenge for me how I overcome that. So as a player, I was learning and improving. And, um, you know, those things that were always in my mind as a youngster even. To, to go abroad at some stage and I had that opportunity and work with Arsene Wenger <laughs> I thought that might be coming <laughs> and we won the league in the first year and we went into European Cup and whatever whatever but it was it was fantastic and um, just just you know broadened me on and off the pitch and that's what I was seeking and I think I did my apprenticeship with 13 years at the club hmm. well I was lucky that I played I played in one of those games where Glenn was given a free role. We were playing away in Greece, and 
Bob Robson uh, decided before the game he was going to give Glenn that free roll behind the front two. But he had, in the cross behind him, he had myself, Brian Robson and Sammy Lee. So we were just in there to, you know, to, to basically get the ball back, give it to Glenn. He absolutely destroyed Greece that night. <laughs> probably the best game I think I've probably seen. I was lucky enough to play with Glenn in, uh, in an England shirt. And yet Bobby Robson didn't see, right, um, that's just how I'm going to play in, no. you know, from here on in. No, and I, I, you, listen, you know, I've been in that job. Myself as England manager, you have to make your choices. And you, in the end, as a player, you're, I, was, I was, you know, I had 53 caps. A lot of people in other countries, Aussie used to say it, said that, uh, you know, I should have had more. But I'm, I'm proud of the 53 that I had. Like, Gary would be proud of, of the caps that he had as well. When you play for your country, you know, if they told you you're going to play in goal, you'd play in goal. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Which you did for Spurs that night oh, on Trafford. Yeah. Three, three times, yeah. <laughs> um, Gary, that was frightening. <laughs> Gary, you alluded earlier about um, when you were playing at Spurs and you were club captain and, and the transitional periods that you went through. Obviously, there was after David Pleat, there was Tay Venables, Peter Shreve, Doug Livermore, Ozzy Ardiles, Jay Francis, and finally, Christian Gross. When... Um, <laughs> when... Uh, when Christian Gross was there, most, most fans here, one of the most puzzling appointments that the club has ever made as a manager. You were most senior player then at the club. It's quite probably why well you and him didn't get on. Why was that? Uh, I wouldn't say we wouldn't get on, really. It was my, it was my last year at Tottenham. Um, my contract was up at the end of that season. And uh, I played my, my least games in that, uh, during that season. I, spent, I think I played about 18 games. The rest I spent on the bench. So, unfortunately, um, Christian Gross, I think, was uh, in, in my place was playing his love child, Ramon Vega. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that must be very difficult, sitting on the bench and Vega's ahead of you every single game. <laughs> but, uh, but to be fair, I mean, Ramon had all the attributes to have been yeah, the top, top player. He was very, very fit. Yeah, he was good in the air. Uh, but he just at times I think he, he thought he was Beckenbauer <laughs> so, he thought he was Beckenbauer but he was really Willie Young well, <laughs> Do you think that's so of course we're going through the season getting towards, you know, towards the bottom of the table the keeper you know, obviously I was on the bench Jürgen came back uh, and then obviously myself and Jürgen were roommates and uh, he obviously couldn't understand the way things were going Christian Gross had some as a coach he had some very good ideas it was just his man management uh, was poor to say the least um, and I think that was the big problem within the dressing room uh, Give us an example of that because obviously we're interested about how, how managers and players, man, man management is such a big thing in football now Yeah, I mean, I think when, a manager, so when a manager arrives at a club I think he has to get his feet under the table see how things work and then try and gradually move things the way that he wants uh, when Christian Gross arrived um, his first week he was there after training he said look I go back to the hotel, wanted to talk to me about the, the club and things. We sat for about six hours talking about the players, the club, how things were done, um, how things have been done you know, over the last few years. We, we left that meeting. I don't honestly believe that he actually listened to a word I'd said. Uh, he, he moved from black to white overnight. Um, example being is that he wanted all the players, very much a European situation, that before every game you stay in a hotel. So we'd be at the training ground. We finished training by midday on the Friday. We then all go together. You know, for, you'd probably be together for the next, like, 36 hours. You know, obviously, all staying together at the hotel. Players trying to while the time away. You know, 
cards gets played and gambling starts and all those things. But he said to me, do you think the players will want to go to a hotel before games? I said, well, I'm not sure. We'll ask the players. We had a squad of 26 players. <laughs> so I phoned each one individually to see how many would want to be in a hotel, how many would want to go to a hotel. Sorry, stay at home. So came back with a vote, okay? So that there were 19 that wanted to stay at home, and there were seven that wanted to go to a hotel. <laughs> so I went back the following day, went in to see Christian. I said, look, this is the results. Nine, 19 want to stay at home, seven want to go to a hotel. He said, not a bit enough margin, he said, we're going to a hotel. <laughs> right. So, and, the, and the seven wanted to go after the game. <laughs> But Gary, I, I heard for because things didn't go well under, but not surprisingly, from what you're telling us, things did, went very badly, more or less immediately under Christian Gross and got got steadily worse. I had uh, an an impeccable source told me that in uh, towards the end of that season, when things were going incredibly badly, that he was on the brink and that people on the Spurs board were one defeat away from sacking him and giving control of the team to you and Jurgen Klinsmann going into the run into that season and that he he got a couple of decent results and he turned it around and it didn't happen but is that true <laughs> I I think that's your answer <laughs> I thought so there were times uh, and then I think we the, the game that uh, we're talking about I think we, we won that game and then it was felt that uh, things couldn't change fortunately um, Jürgen came up with a fantastic Appearance, I think it was away at, uh, against Wimbledon. Wimbledon. Yeah, I was there. Yeah. Uh, that Great obviously hell of a day. saved us, uh, obviously, from uh, the threat of relegation. So, yes, I think a couple of times over the years, there have been a couple of times where uh, the relationship between myself and Jürgen was, was mooted about. Yeah. As far That's as why I thought time. earlier you were, you were building up to an announcement. <laughs> you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I'm afraid. Uh, uh, a, bit, a bit too serious, but I had a big operation last year, which means I can't ever kick a ball again and oh, no. do things like that. So oh, I, I, can't, I can't stand on wet pitches and can't be a coach, can't manage. Mm. So I'm afraid all those aspirations have now been I've taken got, away. I've got to say, why are you saying that? This guy is unbelievable, by the way. Unbelievable. Not only on the football pitch, but what he... What... What he had to face... What he had to face off the pitch was... Well, I don't think I could have done it. And I, I, I've got the utmost respect for Gary for what he had to face off the pitch. And I'm not so sure I could have done that. It was amazing, Gary, really. Thank you. Honestly. Thank you. Because life is more important than football. Life is more important than football. And, you know, to, to, to make the sacrifice... We all make sacrifices, but not, not like Gary has to, uh, to achieve what he's achieved in football. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Like to... Um, I'd like to bring up a player who's very dear to a lot of uh, our hearts here that Gary played with and you managed uh, at England. It was obviously Paul Gascoigne. Um, you obviously famously left him out of the England Ooh. squad in 1998. What was he both like to, to, to work with as a, as a player and as a manager, Paul Gascoigne? Gary? I'll, 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 well, on the England front there, that was the saddest decision I've ever had to make. And uh, people forget that the reason I left Gaza, he played in every game for me. And I remember sitting him down six months before. We'd we, we just qualified. But, you know, we, we, we went to Rome and got the draw. He played really well, magnificent in, in, in Rome. We all did. Um, and, you know, I said to him, look, you're, in, you're injured. He was at Middlesbrough at the time. 
And as an England manager, you're sort of you're leasing the car. It's not your car. You know, you have them for ten days. They go back to their club. So you're not there every day. On top of them, sort of nutrition-wise, you know, telling. I said to him, "You got another World Cup here. You know what the '90 World Cup did for you. You know, you got probably maybe your last World Cup, but it, it's, it's a World Cup." And he was up for it, but I never really felt he, he listened enough to say, "Look, you've got to get fitter. You've been injured so many times." The problem, the problem was, he was at Middlesbrough with the manager Brian Robson, who was a fantastic player, but liked to drink. Viv Anderson was his assistant, and I've been out on a few nights with Viv, and he likes a drink. And he shared a house with Paul Merson at the time. <laughs> so, I don't need to paint any other picture, do I? I blame Merson. <laughs> so, and I was, you know, saying to him, you've got to keep yourself fit because I need you in the World Cup, and... Yeah, Gaffer, yeah, Gaffer, you know, and the, you know, Gaza was, he was, a lo- he was such a lovely kid, he really was lovely, fantastic player, we all know that, but, uh, and, but he wasn't listening, he was injured again every, every time I said to Johnny Gorman, go, you know, go and watch Gaza, we found out on the Friday he wasn't playing again, and, and it was such a frustration for me, uh, because he had done so well, so it was the saddest, saddest moment in my management career to, to actually make that decision, that he didn't come, because he got injured in the pre pre-tournament down in Morocco. But I just, got, just before I go on, I've got to tell you a, a lovely true story. Um, we're all right to swear, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I mentioned the game at Rome. I don't know if you remember. We needed a draw to qualify for the 98 World Cup. It was massive, you know, the yeah. pressure that we were under. And as manager, you know, for that week, you were, like, bigger than the Prime Minister. Everything was on you. And we got the draw, and we played magnificent. But I don't know if you remember, after about 15 minutes, Paul Wintz got... Injured, he's cut his head. Yeah, Olympic Stadium, massive stadium. We come out of the halfway line, but the dressing rooms are about a mile away behind the goals. So I said, get him done. I need him 20 minutes into the game. You've got Zola hitting balls, hitting the crossbar, and they had a fantastic team. They hadn't been beaten there for 17 games. Get him back as quick as you can. Well, four minutes goes by. I'm thinking, where the bloody hell is the doctor? Where's Paul? So it gets to seven minutes, and I'm thinking, do I make the substitution so early in the game? I need Paul, Paul Ince on that pitch. There's, there's no doubt about it. So uh, I'm going balmy. And anyway, suddenly Paul arrives. He runs up the steps with the doctor, and I've started to have a go at the doctor. I thought, no, now's not the time. And Paul comes with a great big bandage all round his head. He comes running up. I said, where you been? Anyway, get on here. We've held out. It's nil-nil. You're doing well. So referee calls him on, and Gaza comes running over. And Paul runs on, and we've got my bench there, got the Italian bench there, and Maldini was the manager. And Gazza comes running over again, Wee, Incy, you look like a fucking painter Guinness. <laughs> Sorry for swearing, but it's part of the story. And that, that, that was absolute. So I, you know, our humour, I start absolutely, I'm doubled up. Graham Lasso's on the pitch five yards away. He's playing left side when we, he's doubled up. I look over to my bench, and the whole bench are in hysterics. I look round to Maldini, and they're like that. <laughs> I'm sure they're thinking, crazy English. And I, I think they looked at it and thought, we ain't beating these tonight, because they're, they're so relaxed, and it was just absolutely Gazza at his best. Gary, as a player, that, that 91 cut run where, you know, I mean, he single-handedly got to that cut final with, with some of those games and obviously what happened in the final. What was he like to play with during that cut run? 
Well, I think uh, as soon as we as soon as we signed Paul, you knew all about his uh, you know, his antics. You knew about his history. Uh, I remember one of our first games um, played away from home. And I think we were away at Notts Forest. And after the game, when the game's finished, obviously you get changed, you go to the players' lounge, you, you have a drink, okay, and then obviously you get on the coach to go home. Now, being a diabetic, I have to have injections before I have a meal. So, us pampered soccer stars, we have like two chefs on the coach, we get a four-course meal served to us on the way home, wine if we win, all very nice. So anyway, I, I'm on the coach, so I'm halfway down the coach, got my needle out, got my insulin out, I see Paul getting on the bus. All the way up the bus, he's staring at me, he's clocking me all the way. He stopped by the table and he's gone, Mamsy, what are you doing? I said, well, Paul, I'm a diabetic. I've got sugar diabetes. I didn't try to explain to him what diabetes was. <laughs> uh, I think at that stage he thought sugar diabetes was a very famous boxer, you know. So, <laughs> so I said, no, I've got diabetes, I have to have injections four times a day. He went, what, every day? I said, yeah, four times every day, Paul. He said, just while you're a footballer. I said, no, Paul, I've got four injections every day for the rest of my life. He went, every day for the rest of your life? I went, yeah. He went, cool, he said. They can't wait to die, can you? (laughs) (laughs) And I looked up and there was that Gaza grin. (laughs) But no, I said, I was very fortunate. I played with some... in my career, I was very lucky to play with some fantastic players. You know, Glenn Hoddle, um, to me, him, I mean, really him and Gaza have been at the, the top, top levels of players I've played with. Players that could grab the game by the scruff of the neck, turn it your way, a sheer bit of brilliance, the creativity that they had. Um, and in that, we were fortunate for myself as a player and for, and for the Spurs fans in that we saw the best of Paul Gascoigne mm. during that 1991 <laughs> season. <laughs> He was absolutely outstanding. Definitely. I mean, it's impossible in football to say to get you through single-handedly, but if it was possible, he did it that season. And of course, we we got to the final. I mean, everyone says to you, "Did you not realise that Paul was totally hyped? He was always hyped up for games. He was always totally over the top. I mean, in the warm-up, you know, all you could see was him getting the ball. What he used to get do in the warm-ups, he'd get the ball and he'd ping the ball at the band yeah. who's sitting in the middle of the pitch. <laughs> and suddenly, you know, the band, all their thing would be knocked over, they'd be flying over and he'd be there. <laughs> so they all put their stands back up again. Next minute, ping, straight back into the band again. So I thought, no, no, that Paul's on form. He's, you know, he's doing his usual antics. And, of course, those two challenges uh, early in the game, um, obviously, were awful. Um, and I remember probably he got carried off early in the game. We were 1-0 down. I think Terry Venables gave the best half-time team talk. He just went out there. He said, look, Gaz is on his way to hospital. He's seriously injured. He, he got us all the way to the final. He just said, keep playing the same way, and Gary, you'll lift the cup. So we went out second half. Obviously, we, we won the game. Uh, I remember we went straight from Wembley, straight down to the Princess Grace Hospital in London, where Paul had been taken. So... I was the first, uh, so we got up to the third floor where he was. I was the first one. Uh, obviously, I'm carrying the FA Cup. I'm carrying his, his medal, his winner's medal. So I knocked on the door and heard him shout, come in. And so I walked in the door, carrying the FA Cup, and uh, all the players came in. Uh, as usual, Paul cried. Um, <laughs> but no, he, he said that, uh, obviously, he, did, he was lying there in bed. He got there in time to see me lifting the cup. And all he wanted to do was, he asked his surgeon, could he come to the 
after your final party with us. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, yeah, Paul's a fantastic player, but I think we saw the best of him at, uh, at Tottenham. Yeah. Glenn, final, final question about England and managing, because you know, we had a wonderful record managing England, England. Did you feel let down the way the whole thing ended for you at England? Yeah, in a way, yes. Yeah, I was... Um, I was uh, very frustrated, really, because I felt the key to me, I mean, all the rubbish that went on was, was rubbish, and, and you felt that the FA should have backed me more. Um, you know, they, they showed a lot of weakness, really. They weren't strong enough in, in what was happening behind the scenes. But what, was, what really hurt me was the football side. I mean, because we had a team there that I felt we could go on. In, ni- in 98, I felt it, it, we had a chance. And I really, I really felt with a young Michael Owen, with a young Rio Ferdinand, I'd put Skulls and Beckham, who were 22, 23. Those four, I had, the, I had the formula, the nucleus of a team, and I still had your Inces and your Shearers and your Adams and your Seat. We still had experience around those four players. So my vision was the Euros. I felt we could really have an onslaught with the Euros and maybe win it with the squad that we had because the football we played, the system we played was different at that time. We made them play in a different way and they were playing for their clubs. But in the end, they took to it, and um, that was the frustrating thing. You know, it, it does feel like unfinished business, if you, if you like. I don't think I'll ever get that opportunity again. In the lo- but it's very, very frustrating when it's taken away from you, and you look at your football record, and you think, well, you know, why, why was that done? They've got to be thinking differently. Um, I think in this era, it might change. It, they might have stood by a manager, which they've learned, hopefully over the past but it was frustrating but I've got to say it was the proudest moment you know as a player you play for your country leading them out in the World Cup against Tunisia at Marseille was incredible feeling you know I never I never expressed that again it was unbelievable feeling and you knew the country was, you know it was a bit of pressure there <laughs> but it was you know it was just a fabulous feeling that the whole country was watching and you you're making those decisions that have to be made tough ones but and uh, I knew we had a squad that could go all the way. With your manager's hat on, looking at the Tottenham and the present team, what do you think you could do with, with you know, you know the constraints of, 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 of working at Spurs. What do you think you could do with that present squad? How would you turn that team into a, well, a top four team at the very least? For the best. Well, I think, <laughs> yeah, good luck. No, I, th- I think there's, there's talent there. I think there's untapped talent that we haven't seen yet. As I said, I, I, I think... I don't know what things have been done. When you bring seven players in and, and with no Premier, Premier League experience, I think that was a problem. The foreign aspect, a lot of them didn't understand the league. I think you had to work with them. I've never worked with them players, so you know, there's, I've always looked at clubs I've been at, I've always looked at certain players, and I've changed their position. I've seen something in them that perhaps they haven't seen themselves. So there's players there that I would actually look at that for, for, for different reasons. But the system, you know, we played one up front against... But, you know, with Clive Allen, and he scored 49 goals. It's not about whether you've got one striker. It's how many arrive in the penalty area at the time when it's needed, when that ball's arriving, however it's coming in. So you can end up, you know, if you've got the system right, that is what you're, you, that's what you're, you're aiming for. So working with them, I've definitely, I take what Gary said about hitting. Any club I've gone to, I, I do believe in you have to improve that player. I don't care. That's the beauty of this game. It's such a wonderful game that every person involved in football, whether you're a manager that's been 
you know, Alex Ferguson, or a player, Messi or Ronaldo at this moment in time, or Gareth Bale as the, as, the, as the most expensive player in the world, there is always something to learn and improve on. And there really is. If you ever think you come to the end of learning in football, that's why it's such a fantastic game. You know, I was having this discussion with, with people last night about snooker, and I said, snooker, fantastic. But the minute they did one four, a one four seven, that was, the, that was the handcuffs on that sport, in my opinion. Whereas football's completely, every game is different. Every player's got different uh, attributes. And that's why it's a beautiful game when it's played well. But as, as to, to working with that group of players, it's impossible to answer that until you've got on that training ground and you understand the player's mentality, their techniques, what they're good at, what they're bad at, and then you put the systems in that you think will suit. So sitting here, very difficult to answer. You have to get out and work on the training ground with players. Gary and Glenn, before we turn it over, a quick Q&A so everyone here can have a question. We all love Spurs. What, try and sum up what Tottenham... Oxford means means to the both of you. I guess. Well, I think for myself, um, obviously, I, I came from Bristol Rovers and uh, Keith Bergenshaw signed me at Tottenham. When he first signed me, he said, look, you know, it may take you two or three years to get into the first team. We think you've got the potential to, to make it here at Tottenham. I had three or four other offers from other clubs in the first division at the time. Uh, but to me, as soon as I arrived at uh, White Hart Lane, this is where I wanted to be. And I have to be honest and say that uh, some, sometimes the, uh, the Spurs fans you know, can take a while to, to warm to certain players. Um, I, was just, I think I was fortunate in the fact that you know, I, was, uh, I was bought for 105,000 end-of-season bargain basement sale. Uh, nobody had ever heard of me. And then suddenly uh, I played in my, my debut in this country in the charity shield at Wembley. I had a, an OK game. In my debut the following Saturday, and I think what really... Uh, I think won the fans over. I think the first, the fourth minute of that, my very first game for Tottenham at White Hart Lane, uh, Glenn Hoddle took a most wonderful free kick. It was great that first season. I played in midfield, by the way. That first season, I was a joint top goal scorer in the league with Steve Archibald because every time I made a run in the box, Glenn would find me. <laughs> I don't know and uh, <laughs> my only goal for England to Glenn Hoddle corner. Uh, my goals to Tottenham, uh, my very first goal against Luton Town in the fourth minute. Glenn took the free kick. I got on the end of it, headed it home. I think from that moment until this moment, myself have a wonderful relationship with the Spurs fans. And, uh, you know, every time I go back to the club... Glenn, you've been there from age eight years on onwards. Yeah. What does well, Spurs mean to you? It's, well, it means everything, you know, outside your family and your kids and things like that. It, it, I said it earlier, it's, it's been in my DNA since I walked into White Hart Lane. When I, was, I went to Tottenham Reserve game against Leicester. It was, a, it was a night game, I'll never forget it. It was the first time I'd been in a stadium and um, seeing the green grass, you know, under the lights. And that was it. That was it. I was a Spurs fan from, from there on, went to the games. Um, just, you know, it became a part... I was lucky enough then to go there training at 12. Well, it just was just nearly 12. Going every Tuesday and Thursday from Harlow to get the train. At 12 years of age, you wouldn't let your kids go there from Harlow to White Hart Lane and get back at 10 o'clock at night. My dad would pick me up. You just wouldn't do it now, would you? But I, I saw some sights, I can tell you. <laughs> I grew up quick. Um, 
But that's what you do when you've got a love for a club and you're dedicated and you want to be a footballer. But there was one thing that always... That always I, I, you know, I've, I've said this before. It was, it was strange how the, the, the style of the club and what the supporters wanted from the club and me, my style as a player, even when I was a kid, they just went... You know, I was made for Tottenham and Tottenham was made for me. And it just sort of gelled. And I think it, it was almost a destiny for me to go to Tottenham. But... but the lovely story for me, to always try and keep my feet on the ground, I remember when I was apprentice, because you, 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 know, you clean the toilets, you clean the dressing rooms, and again, that's a part of your DNA of, of growing up at a club that you love. But I remember Johnny Wallace, uh, who used to run the boot, the boot man, who used to run the, uh, the apprentices, he said to me and Gary Himes, who was an apprentice, good left foot, laid out on the left wing, he said, you two, you're over there, your job, this was pre-season, you're going to, you know, the cock crawl on the top of the shelf? He said, you're going to polish the, the cockerel. And we went, yeah, all right, John, you're having a laugh, eh? He went, no. A few spice words, as John had. He said, no, there's your polish. So we went, me and Gary, and I, it was a blazing hot day. We went over there. We had to go up the back of the shelf, up the ladder. Nearly, I mean, this, this day and age, can you imagine doing that? Health and safety, no chance. So we go up there, and we went, blazing sunshine. So we got up to this cockerel, and, it was, and we thought, well, we're up here, come on, take a shirt. So we sat there and for about three hours. <laughs> Came back red raw, but we polished that. We polished that cockerel with, with pride. We really did. And, and, and one of the things, one of the things that stayed with me every game is when, I, when the old tunnel, do you remember the old tunnel was down and you come out of the sort of a hole and then obviously the new tunnel when the new stand was built... Every time I ran out for a warm-up, I looked at that cockerel and thought, yeah, remember that day when you had to bloody well polish that? Keep your feet on the ground. So that was good. Well, that's a, a, a fitting way to end this, this part. Um, this is the Spurs Show. For those of you listening at home, all the links at spurshow.net. We're back next week. But for now, uh, Glenn Hoddle and Gary Mabbott. Ooh, voice went, oh. See, see it's going. I, like Arthur Rowe. Just going. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very much, Gary and Glenn. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This show is brought to you in association with Paddy Power. Get a free £20 bet when you sign up and bet a tenner at paddypower.com slash the Spurs show. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.